Take your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 5 as we continue our study, and let's just, let's get there, and then we're going to go right to the throne of grace, and then we'll read the text. John chapter 5. Let's pray. Blessed be your name. Lord, I, I thank you that you give us a choice, as you did Job, and as you did Job's wife. His wife said, curse God and die. Job said, shall we receive good things at the hand of the Lord? Shall we not also receive hard things? You give, you take away. Help us individually when those things come our way, when we have good days and the sun is shining. Help us to bless your name and not just enjoy the day, Lord, when things are tough. Help us not to curse you. Help us to bless you. Help our heart to choose to say, blessed be the name. Lord, meet with us in this time as we study. Pray that you would help me as I teach. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help me to say the things you want me to say, to not say things that you don't want me to say. I pray that as a result of what we study today, we would leave here encouraged in our faith, knowing that you have given to us a more sure word of testimony. Your scriptures. We can hang our eternal destiny on what you have said in this book. May we love it. Because it's really synonymous with you. Who you are. You have exalted your word above your very name. So we pray that you exalt your word and your name today in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me in John chapter 5. We're going to read the first seven verses of this chapter as we continue our study, just to introduce ourselves to what is happening. So Jesus went to Galilee, you remember, following his interaction with the woman at the well in chapter 4. While he is in Cana, we studied last week how Jesus healed the official's son who was close to death, was right at the point of death. Jesus, by his word, heals this young lad. Jesus is not physically present there, but Jesus speaks a word and it is done. And the man in faith turns and goes back to Capernaum. And all his household believes in Jesus. And it says in verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, it doesn't name for us which feast it is. We can guess it's not a Passover because we read of other Passovers in the Gospel of John. And we know how many Passovers Jesus celebrated in his earthly ministry. Perhaps this is Tabernacles. Perhaps it's Pentecost. There's a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate 
What were sheep used for? Sacrifice. Okay, so they're bringing in sheep through this gate on their way to the temple in the sacrificial system. By the sheep gate, there is a pool in Aramaic, which is the common language of Jesus' day, the street language. So remember, the Jews of Jesus' day spoke and read three languages. One of them was Greek, one of them is Hebrew, and the street language is Aramaic. They picked it up while they were in Babylon. Book of Daniel is primarily written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. So three languages were used in the recording and the writing of the scriptures, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And in the Aramaic, it is called Bethesda. Bethesda means what? House of mercy. House of mercy. So when you hear Bethesda, Maryland, you hear hospitals many times being named Bethesda, it is because Bethesda means it is a house of mercy, compassion. And there is a five-roofed colonnade there. And in this, this is like an ancient hospital. In this, there is a multitude of invalids and blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew what he had already been there, that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one. Put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, stop with me there in the text. The question on the screen this morning is, can I trust the Bible? Say, where did I get that from those verses? Can I trust the Bible? Now, we're going to talk about some things this morning that are somewhat technical. But this is an extremely important subject for us as individuals, as Christians, that we have an understanding of some of the things we talk about today so that our faith is based, is built upon the bedrock foundation of the credibility, the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. I have a ranch. We have a lot of old pickup trucks, and I can't afford any new tractors. Every tractor I have is older than I am, as well as every baler and every swather. And... Uh, I am not a mechanic, but I have learned how to turn a wrench to do some diagnosis. And as life has gone, I've learned more. I never like it, but I'll do it. But I'm not a mechanic. I am not a mechanic. When something big comes along, I know who to call. It's, called, it's my son-in-law, right? He went to school. He's the mechanic. Some of the things we talk about today, it's, it's good we have a healthy dose of humility. Some of the things we talk about today are very technical. 
And I want you to know that I am no personal expert in some of these areas, although I've turned this wrench a lot in my ministry. And I've read about it a lot. But I also am willing to trust some mechanics out there who really understand these things, who are good biblical scholars. So as I expose you to some things today, and as we think about these things, I think it's very important we all recognize and realize, you know, there's a lot of armchair theologians out there on the Internet and in the blogosphere, and you can read everything, and you, but you don't know if that guy's an expert, Right? He may not know nothing. What we look at today, though, is very credibly researched information by guys who do understand. You say, why? Why are we talking about this? Okay, let's look at the text. Now, this translation is the Holman Standard Translation. I read to you from the ESV this morning. Some of you might have been reading from the Old King James. Some of you might have been reading from the New King James. Some of you might have the NIV. Some of you might have the NASB. That's why we don't do scripture reading on Sunday morning where we all read it together because it would sound like anarchy, right? Because we have a lot of different translations. Okay. If you were reading the King James, you said, Pastor Tim's eyes are really bad because he skipped part of verse 3 and verse 4. Right? So let's look at this this morning. After this, a Jewish festival took place. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem is a pool named Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, notice there is a bracket here in the Holman Standard, and that bracket ends here, and I put these words in yellow. And these are the words that I did not read to you this morning from the ESV. Waiting for the moving of the water. So, the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed were not just there like it's a hospital, They were there for what specific reason? They were waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Oops. Sir, the sick man replied. And then I put this in green, not because it is disputed, but because it clearly links with verse 3 and 4. Sir, the sick man said, I don't have a man. I'm an invalid. I don't have someone to put me into the pool When the water is stirred. But while I'm on my way, while I'm in this rat race to get there first, somebody else gets in the water ahead of me and they got healed. So Jesus said to him, Get up, 
pick up your mat, and walk. Now, we could have skipped this this morning, and I could have just preached on the text and not interacted with this. But I think as Christians, it is very important we don't check our brain at the door. Because if we do, when somebody raises an objection to the credibility of the Bible, we ain't going to have an answer. And we ain't going to know what to do and what to say, and our faith is going to be shaken if we're a young person. So we better know. Because some of you were sitting in here this morning and those verses, verse 3 and 4, were in your Bible. And some people like me, you maybe use the ESV and they weren't. So what does that do to the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? Is it reliable? And how do I know? So let's interact with this this morning. By the way, I'll tell you right out the gate, you've been around here long enough, you know that I believe... It is reliable, okay? And you know that I believe that it is inspired by God, it is inerrant, and it is infallible. We're going to look at some of these concepts this morning, but I'll tell you out the gate, that's what I believe and what I'm teaching. So you understand that? I don't want you to get any misunderstandings here. My biggest concern in going into this this morning was, God, I've been praying all week that I can lay this out in a way that people leave here with an understanding that strengthens their faith. So is the Bible reliable? Yes, it is, but let's think about it. Why is this important? Well, like I said, it's important because if you are a young person and you go to school and somebody is trying to shake your foundation in, in the faith, and I'm not saying it's going to happen here, but it may happen when you go off to college. Or you, yourself, an adult, you're sitting there reading your Bible, and you notice this in the footnotes. And you think, what is this? Can I trust the Bible? Why was this verse left out? It is an important thing because really, I mean, think about this. Our eternal destiny as a Christian hinges, yes, on the truthfulness of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sin, that he rose again, but that's recorded in the scripture. And really, the trustworthiness of the Bible is foundational to whether or not our faith has any credibility or not. Because if the Bible is not the word of God, and it is not trustworthy and credible, we may as well go home, right? We may as well go home. So we better understand these things. Now, I want to deal with some contrasting beliefs, and I'm not going to do this this morning. I'm going to do it pretty quick, but I'm not going to do this this morning in any way to denigrate someone who believes different than we do, than I do. But it is to show you that there are other belief systems that look at this very differently within the large fold of what we call Christendom. When they think about the Bible, not everybody that goes to a church believes like an evangelical, conservative, biblical Christian. And so it's important we understand, because you may interact with people, you may even have people in your family, or you may come from a background that believed some of these things. So it's important we think about the or what I say, the contrast. There's a contrast here that I want you to understand. 
And that is there again. It's not, you may be in a different group than we are and may be visiting with us today or new to us. We're not in any way, I'm not trying to denigrate you, to bash you or to put you down, but it is to draw attention to the different beliefs. Because sometimes what happens is nobody wants to talk about what we really believe, right? We just all want to get along and be unified. Well, no, we, I mean, we want to be, you know, a blessing to each other and all that kind of stuff. We need to know what we believe. And, and, and what we say and what we believe is important. So here's some contrasting beliefs. Let's talk about Roman Catholicism for a minute. Roman Catholicism has a tripartite authority in its system. And they utilize, I'll draw a picture here, when I was a kid, milk and cows, we had a three-legged stool. Now you know what's true of a three-legged stool? If you take one leg out, you better have good balance because it ain't going to stand, right? So they believe that the church stands on a three, it's a three-legged stool, and each of those legs is a part of the authority structure of the church. Those three legs are, number one, church tradition. Now, when we say church tradition, and we're talking about Catholicism, we're not just talking about that's the way we always have done it. Okay, like we, I don't know, in our kind of setting, let's say one of our traditions is there's always coffee in the foyer. And if it ain't there in the foyer, I'm going to hear about it, right? Because that's our tradition. Okay, we're not talking about tradition in that sense. We're talking about tradition with a capital T, capital T, when they talk about tradition, when Roman Catholic Church talks about this, what they're talking about is authorized tradition. In other words, it's not just the way we've always done it, it's this is the way we've always done it because this is the way it's supposed to be, the way God ordained it, tradition. The second leg of the stool, and I'm not going to put that word there because you won't read it anyway, is what is called the magisterium. The magisterium is the teaching office of the church. And this is where the Roman Catholics say, you know, you really can't interpret the Bible for yourself. You need someone to authoritatively tell you what it means because we'll get it wrong on our own. So there's the teaching office of the church and the Pope would stand at the head of that. It's called the magisterium. The third leg of the stool would be the Bible, Scripture. Okay, and what the Catholic Church would say is all three of these legs work together to tell us what God wants. Now, what did we do in the Catechism today? We as Protestants believe what? God has given us what? One soul revelation. It's his word, the Bible. So this is a contrast. Now, the other one, and this one there again, I'm going to put it up there, not because in any way... I'm not trying to denigrate or, denigrate or bash someone who comes from this background, but let's think about what the Latter-day Saints believe. One of the reasons I think it's important we interact with this is because we are in a Latter-day Saint community and we interact with Latter-day Saints all the time. So what do Latter-day Saints believe when it comes to the Scripture? They believe that there are other books. They believe in continuing revelation through a living prophet 
and that those continuing revelations are authoritative, and then they also believe in a restoration, don't they? So the Latter-day Saint, the Mormon church, would teach that the Bible was so corrupted by omissions and additions that God had to restore it through a revelation to Joseph Smith, right? That's the the kind of storyline of the LDS faith in a nutshell, in short. So they believe in what we would call an open canon. I'm going to read you a quote. You can listen to it. This is from the Latter-day Saints website. And this is what they say about what they believe concerning authority. So the Latter-day Saints have a great reverence and love for the Bible. This is their website. The Latter-day Saints have a great reverence for the, and love for the Bible. They study it and try to live its teaching. They treasure its witness of the life and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as the Bible was compiled, organized, translated, and transcribed, many errors entered the text. Then they give some more, I'm not going to read everything in this quote, but they give some more explanation about what happened there. So, as the Bible is compiled, organized, translated, transcribed, errors entered the text. In addition to the Bible, Latter-day Saints reverence and study the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the words of modern prophets and apostles. And then this is where we get this word open canon. Latter-day Saints believe in an open scriptural canon, which means that there are other books of scripture besides the Bible, such as the Book of Mormon, and that God continues to reveal his word through living prophets. The argument is often made, this is them again, that to be a Christian means to assent to the principle of sola scriptura. Now, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Or the self-sufficiency of the Bible. Now, they actually get it wrong there. Sola scriptura, the scriptura does not mean self-sufficiency, that the Bible is self-sufficient. It means it is solely sufficient. So they get it wrong there in their wording. I'm not picking on them, but they just don't understand what we really mean by sola scriptura. But, then they say this, but to claim that the Bible is the final word of God, more specifically, the final written word of God, is to claim more for the Bible than it claims for itself. Then they say, nowhere does the Bible proclaim that all revelations from God would be gathered into a single volume, forever closed, and no further scriptural revelation would be received. Okay? That's what it says on their website. This is what they believe. Now, that contrasts with what we believe about the scripture. And it does so along this line. We believe in this doctrine we call sola scriptura. Now, what does that mean? Um... We'll, we'll read a definition of soul scripture in a minute, but as we talk about if the Bible is reliable, there are three issues we're going to try to understand this morning. One, 
the origination of the Bible. It is inspired. Number two, the compilation of the Bible, its canonicity, and then the preservation of the Bible, the manuscripts. Those are the three things. That's three things that we're talking about. Can I trust that the Holy Spirit protected his word so we can be sure that what we hold is an accurate rendering of what they wrote? So when we think about canonicity, man, I think I skipped some. Hold on. I'm going to go back. I didn't. I got my screens out of order somehow. So you got to hold on for a second. Ah, there it is. Let's talk about the doctrine of soul scripture for a minute. Okay, and I'm not going to do, do this long, but it's important if you hear this. This is Latin, by the way. You say, Tim's a true redneck because he doesn't know how to talk. Sola Scriptura, what is that? Okay, that's a Latin phrase. Alone Scripture. But what does alone Scripture mean? Okay, now this is a quote from Ligonier Ministries, and it is the writing of John MacArthur. Most of you know who John MacArthur is. So this is what he said about Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. It is not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. The most ardent defender of Sola Scriptura will concede, for example, that Scripture has little or nothing to say about DNA, microbiology, the rules of Chinese grammar, or rocket science. Right? It doesn't. What does it give us? What is necessary for our salvation? Scripture is therefore the perfect and only standard of spiritual truth, revealing infallibly all that we must believe in order to glorify God. That, no more, no less, is what sola scriptura means. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way, and I'm not going to read that, so do it real quick if you want to read it, and bye-bye, just because of time. So here's, let's talk about canonicity for a minute. When we think about canonicity, we are talking about how books got in the Bible. Now, we're not talking about individual verses like what I'm dealing with in chapter 5. We're talking about, okay, how did that book get in the Bible, and why didn't this book get in the Bible? So, and all of this came into kind of the public vernacular because of the book, The Da Vinci Code, and the movie, and all that. The first thing to think about, when we think about canonicity, when you think about, you know, did we get everything in the Bible that God wanted us to have? The church, and I'm putting, I should have put a capital C there because we're not talking about local churches. We're talking about the church, the church of Jesus Christ, universal, does not determine Scripture's books. It only receives and then approves them as canonical. Now, when we say canonical, the word canonical comes from a Latin term, which means a rule or a ruler, and it is speaking of that which is the norm to be believed. 
Now, so when you hear the word canonicity or the canon of Scripture, don't think of a 155-millimeter howitzer. Okay, that's not what we're talking about with a canon. We're talking about the books of the Bible and how they were placed in what we call the Bible, the Scriptures. The four tests that the early church used to determine what was received and approved by the churches, given by the Holy Spirit, was, number one, their apostolic origin. And they did this based on John 14. Here's this verse. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, Jesus said. He's talking to them in the upper room. I'm still here. This is what I've given you. But the Holy Spirit, the helper, he will do what? He will teach you everything, and he will bring to your remembrance everything I said to you. Now, that was a promise to who? The apostles. Not to 12th grade calculus students. Okay? Don't pray that prayer. I didn't study God, but it helped me to remember everything the teacher said. That's not a promise to you kids. Okay? He is talking to the apostles. Now, God does bring things to our remembrance. I'm not saying, you know what I'm saying here. This is a promise to the apostles that he would teach them through the Holy Spirit and that he would bring to their remembrance everything he wanted communicated in the Gospels and in the epistles. So this is a promise from Jesus that the Holy Spirit would enable them to be remembering what he said and that the Holy Spirit would explain it to them. So the Gospels are what? A record of what Jesus did and taught. The epistles are what? They are an explanation of what he did and taught. Aren't they? By the Holy Spirit. And so there is an apostolic origin in canonicity. Secondly, universal approval and reception. In other words, they just came together in these church councils and they said, what books did you receive as an apostolic witness? And they came up with a universal list. That's why certain books didn't make that cut. So the Shepherd of Hermes, for instance, didn't make the cut. It was not universally used. Um, internal marks, the self-claims. In other words, within the book itself, did it claim to be the Word of God? Does the book itself claim to be the Word of God? And then the spiritual power that flowed from it. Important part of canonicity. So that's, we're going to move. We're moving, so, you know, buckle your seatbelt because we're going to keep going. This is a quote from Lifeway Research. I'll just draw your attention to it because I think it is important when we talk about what we're talking about now with manuscripts. We talked about canonicity real briefly. It was a real quick overview. But just think about this as we look at this this morning. The Bible has the most surviving copies of any ancient document to put its text to the test for variant readings, which is what we're talking about in John 5, or for corruption. There are around 24,000 manuscripts from all over the ancient world. Now, you often hear there are about 5,000. 
Why does LifeWay say there's 24,000? Because they are including in that list a lot of things that are not typically included in the 5,000 list. Like quotes from the ancient church fathers and other things that are corroborating sources as manuscript evidence for what God has said. And you can clearly say there are tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts that can be used to verify the credibility of Scripture. If a variant is found in a manuscript from Egypt, it can be cross-checked against a manuscript from Syria. If a variant appears in a later manuscript, it can be compared to an earlier manuscript to discover when the variant was introduced into the text. What is the value of knowing our manuscripts can be checked for reliable transmission? It confirms the teaching found within has been the same since it was written. We can know with assurance that what the authors wrote 2,000 years ago is what we have today. God has given to us credible, reliable manuscripts that can be looked at to verify what God has said. So, then this brings us to the question, the actual manuscript that we, or the actual text that we are looking at. Why do most conservative evangelical scholars, and I put that there intentionally, because we're not talking about textual critics who don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. We are talking about conservative evangelical scholars who do not believe that verse 3 and 4 are authentic to John. Thus, it is not in the ESV and in many modern translations. Now, there are two places in John's gospel where there are variant readings of any note. One is in John 5 that we're looking at today. And one is the woman taken in adultery in John 8. John 5, most don't believe is authentic. John 8, most do believe is authentic. But both of those, there are variant readings in the manuscripts that make people debate it. Okay? So why? When I read the ESV, why wasn't it in there? Here, number one, it is not included in the oldest and the best manuscripts. Okay, that's the long and short of it. The end of verse 3 and verse 4 is not in the best and oldest manuscripts that are available. Now you say, okay, does that mean anything? Well, here's some other things to think about. Number two, those words, and maybe you kind of notice it when you read your Bible, the grammar and the words themselves are substantially different than John's. The very sentence structure of those sentences is different. 
And there are word choices that are in there that John just does not use in, many other, in any other place in his writing. That's an important thing that causes many to say, no, this is a scribal gloss. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Here's another important one. Those two, the, the, the portion of that verse and verse 4, come from manuscripts. It's not in only one manuscript, but it does come from manuscripts from a single geographic area. Byzantium, church of, the Byzantine church. A single geographic area. It does not come from manuscripts from Syria. Syria was very important in the early church. Syrian Antioch does not come from manuscripts from Jerusalem or Egypt, Alexandria, which was really the learning center of the ancient world. So that verse and verse 3 only comes from manuscripts from a single geographic area. That also causes scholars to believe that those verses, those words, those sentences are not authentic to John. Here's another thing to think about. It does. These verses raise some serious theological problems. And you maybe have never thought about them, but here they are. Grace selectively secured based on human effort, can I get in the water, that pits a single person against every other person. Think about what's being required there if the angel goes into the water and stirs it up and whoever is first gets healed. What does that sound like? It sounds more like survival of the fittest in a dog-eat-dog world than a gracious God who just gives to those in need. It doesn't sound like anything else in the Bible, does it? It does not sound like it's in character with our God. So we need to think about that as well in relationship to that verse. So here's the way. As we study this next week, we're not going to talk about an angel stirring the water. We're going to talk about a man who was an invalid for 38 years who was there by a pool. And Jesus comes along and heals him. We're not going to talk about an angel stirring the water and whoever gets in the water first gets healed. It is best to view the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 as what is called a scribal gloss that was intended to explain the words of the man in verse 7 when he says, I don't have any man to put me in the water. So it is a scribal gloss intended to explain what the man is saying about the water and thus to authenticate the tradition of the inhabitants of Jerusalem in regard to the healing power of the waters of Bethesda. Okay? Now, I hope I'm not losing you all. I hope this is making some sense to you because it is important to wrestle with. A guy named Stephen Nichols at Ligonier Ministry said this about the Bible, and we're just going to bring it to a close. 
The Bible has a remarkable inner consistency. Now think about this book that we hold here, that you carry with you. It was written over a span of 1,200 years. Think of the space of time from Genesis to Revelation, 1,200 years. It was written by 39 different authors. These authors come from all kinds of social strata. Some were kings, some were commoners. It is written in three languages. It was written on three continents. It was written in a multiplicity of political and socioeconomic cultures and contexts. And yet it is one book. It is one book. We read it as though it is one book, don't we? And we study it in relationship to the whole. So you're reading Genesis and you read something in Genesis and you think, man, that reminds me of this over in John. And you're reading a psalm and you see a quote from the book of Ephesians. It's one book. Written by one God. Through 39 men. Over 1,200 years. Preserved and protected. Through tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts. so that we can know God. We can trust it. It is inspired. It is infallible. In Psalm 119, the Bible says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in their heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stays put. He has given us his word. You can bank your eternal destiny on what is in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given to us a more sure word of prophecy pray that, Lord, as we think about how we received your word, how it came to us, we think about the principles that are taught in it, and we think about who you are and how your word reflects your very character. You are trustworthy. I pray that, Lord, you would help us, that we would love and study, know your word. You've told us in your word that your word testifies to you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would bless us this week in it. Dismiss us with your love, and so we...